I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? Summer's over and it's business as usual with another stonking win for Red Bull. It's Verstappen's championship to lose. Big piss Ferrari have already given up the ghost. And on the horizon you can see Max Verstappen disappearing into the distance. It's lights out and away we go. Sainz reacts quickest. Perez comes across to cover off Fernando Alonso. And behind Fernando Alonso, it's his old teammate Lewis Hamilton. Into the Lacombe chicane and they make contact. What an idiot. This guy only knows how to drive for starting first. As Ocon loses a place and onto the gravel, the Williams spinning and then tagging the Alfa Romeo, Nicholas Latifi. Guess what? The DRS has been powerful. I rather think Max Verstappen is about to retake the lead because of the pace of the Red Bull. Max Verstappen into the Comte chicane leads. Very nice move there from Seb, but look at this. He's got two queuing up behind him here. There's three abreast as the Alpha Tauri of Gasly retakes the advantage over Sebastian Vettel and the Alpine of Ocon goes round the outside. It's the second time in this race Ocon's taken two cars in one corner, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's all well that ends well for Max Verstappen and taking the line, winning the Belgium Grand Prix. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors podcast, and I am joined today by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers F1 journalist Ed Spencer and assistant producer Joe Spagnoli. Mysterious F1 Twitter menace unpaid intern is missing in action this week, but rest assured we will still be keeping you very much entertained. Now, let's look at this week's race because it was actually quite an interesting one. I know that some of you might have thought it was a little bit boring in the second half, but I disagree. I think we had a really interesting top 10 at the end of the race. We had a little bit of drama at the beginning. All in all, it was certainly an improvement on last year. At the very least, it was better than last year, which I appreciate for that one. The bar is in hell. However, let's kick off the conversation with that Fernando and Lewis crash, because that was quite something. And I think in particular, Fernando's comments in the heat of the moment afterwards, uh, this guy only knows how to start first and win something along those lines to paraphrase the man in his heated anger. 
But obviously afterwards, Lewis taking full responsibility, which is completely respectable. It's nice to see a driver seeing his mistake, recognizing it, taking full responsibility and also refusing to feed into the drama by giving another sassy comment back or whatever. I think Lewis is at this point in his career so over it and he has matured a lot and he knows exactly what the interviewers are doing when they're trying to get those little sound bites from him and he refused to give it which I respected a lot but guys I'd love to get your thoughts on this because for me it was I was expecting a lot more drama in that first lap to be fair but that was it was quite a moment with Lewis flying through the air it was a weird incident two drivers jockeying for position on the run-up to Lake Oman it was inevitable that one of that neither of them were going to give space, and what we had was a very simple, you know, rather dramatic spa accident. The one thing I will say is that in the heat of the moment, any driver is going to say something quite nasty about the guy who's just had a collision with. So whether Fernando meant it or not, I don't know. It seemed like there was a little bit of ma- menace towards it, sorry, malice towards his comments, but. You know, if you if you start, you're if you're up to seconds on the opening lap, you've got a chance of getting signs. If you're going to have a collision, potentially damaging suspension, you're going to be annoyed. So, yeah, an interesting collision, and I think Lewis did the right thing admitting it for because he did turn in on him. So, I have I believe the driver, not some random armchair racing driver on F1 Twitter. It's been blown out of proportion absolutely wildly. Um, Lewis Hamilton is 100% at fault for that mistake, but it's okay. He admitted it because he is a racing driver of moderate intelligence and the most basic fundamental racing IQ. He can tell it's his fault. He owns up to it. People attacking Fernando Alonso for those comments on the radio. For goodness sake, even NASCAR drivers say that you shouldn't go to drivers right after they've been crashed out because they typically don't have nice things to say about the other driver. I'm amazed that people cannot see through that, cannot apply just a little bit of nuance to this situation. And the people who are responding to this with attacking Alonso, saying Lewis has won more races from off-pole position than Alonso has in his whole career... Are we just going to ignore how unprecedentedly lucky and fortunate Lewis Hamilton has been with the cars he's driven throughout his career? I'm not going to be. I'm disappointed that everyone else seems to. Damn, that one even made producer Royfield raise his eyebrows. That's quite something. But, I mean, no, I have to agree with you. Obviously, he he has more, certainly more than a modicum of racing IQ for sure. But there's no way that you could play that in any other way than Lewis is entirely at fault there was no getting around that at all and I completely respect that point you're absolutely right you couldn't be more right Mr Spagnoli but we're going to move on let's talk about Alpha Tauri because both Alpha Tauri drivers executed their races quite well although Gasly was predictably much better than he has been at one point about halfway through the race I, I forget which lap I just looked at the standings and said holy crap, Gasly's in the points, which is really saying something about him this year because he's been so consistently outside the points and unnoticeable, unlucky, maybe. The car's been horrendous. But actually seeing him in the points this week, I nearly fell off the sofa, to be honest. It was um, a surprise, to say the least. But we like to see that. 
for Gasly. I highlighted sure. Alpha Tauri in general, both drivers this weekend. Even Sonoda, he had his best weekend since probably Baku at the very latest, and it was actually a lot better than it looked. He got stuck in traffic. They put him on a bad strategy, Kel Surprise. He actually did very well with the circumstances. Pierre Gasly in qualifying, how on earth he got that car into Q3, I will never know. In Sector 2, that thing was experiencing the classic bad Formula 1 car syndrome oversteer followed by mid corner understeer not many cars have it it's a sign that they have just designed a fundamentally bad race car this year pierre gasly is working miracles in the thing he's always good at uh, he's always good at spa to be fair but this year he was one of the best on the grid throughout the entire weekend he really was and it was nice to see but if we're going to talk about how the hell did he get that car into q3 can we talk about albon in the williams please Because where the bloody hell did that come from? And while we're on the subject of Williams, we will talk about Latifi as well, because Latifi out is all I have to say. Just get rid of the man. But let's talk about how the hell Alex Albon got that car into Q3 and finished in the points, because that is in and of itself quite the achievement. First weekend, I think Williams have really had a car that can fight for the top 10. And I think we could see that with how much... Albon was picking up on the straight, particularly on the on the Camel straight, uh, on the start finish straight, and also through the fact that there is a, there is quite a few fast corners at Spa for Francochamps, particularly Blanchiment. And yeah, it was a great lap from Alex to get into P10 in Q3, which then became P6. Unfortunately, lost a bit of time in the corners, hence why he couldn't hold on to P6. But yeah, it was another superb drive from from Alex, and he's punching above his weight in what is arguably not a particularly amazing motor car. Uh, whether he can keep it up, we don't know, but Monza should be another weekend where I think Williams should be there, thereabouts. If we're going to stay on the subject of Williams, I, I, I need Latifi to be gone. I really do. Because how are you going to tag Bottas and make him DNF in the first lap on his goddamn birthday? If we're going to stay on the subject of Williams, I, I need Latifi to be gone. I really do. Because how are you going to tag Bottas and make him DNF in the first lap on his goddamn birthday? Happy birthday, Bottas. Here's a gravel pit for you. Thank you very much, my friend. What the hell happened there? I mean, even ignoring the tagging of Bottas, all I have to say is that is a properly amateur mistake through Lecom. Like, no good driver goes off in the second phase of that section. And to be honest with you, I think this was this was definitely Latifi's worst weekend of the season by far considering what his teammate managed to achieve the fact that he was right at the back of the grid and made a rather clumsy mistake into Lake Home as Joe's mentioned and he didn't have the pace to keep Alex behind it's not a good look when you're trying to keep your Formula 1 career alive and from what I've heard on the grapevine it was I mean it was gone already Apparently, rumours would circulate that he was going, he was going to buy Monaco, and there was also a rumour about that France he was going to go for Signor Piastri. Just dreadful, really, from start to finish for, for Nicolas Latifi. And you wonder how long has he got left? I don't think he's got long, if I'm being brutally honest. I think you'd be hard pressed to find people to disagree with you there, to be honest, Mr. Spencer. But let's go from the back of the grid to the front of the grid, because Max Verstappen and Red Bull, that gap, that win, the speed, my God, it's insane. I cannot see anyone catching up with them this season at this point. I cannot see anyone challenging them for the championship, drivers or constructors at this point. Ferrari is a mess. Mercedes, I don't think they're going to be able to 
pull out the pace in time. I just, I don't see it happening. And Max was just on another level in his own league, driving around in circles, probably a little bit bored. The gaps that he was pulling on people lap by lap are genuinely scary. Five tenths, six laps on Sergio Perez in exactly the same car. That car hasn't been the fastest throughout the year on super times. At Spa, the greater straight line speed, the good acceleration out of slow corners, and of course the length of the track, that exacerbates how much better the RB18 is at this particular venue and its particular dynamics. But there's no explaining what Max Verstappen did this weekend. I've watched a lot of onboard from him throughout this weekend. I can't remember seeing anything that could be remotely considered a mistake. It's it's a Senna-esque weekend of just wondering whether this guy is even human. I mean, it wasn't quite Schumacher winning from 16th on the grid and makes conditions good, but it was very good. It was a very outstanding performance. He drove perfect for it, perfectly throughout the weekend, and he would have probably won by a lap if he'd started from pole, but of course the engine penalties made... It was perfect. He didn't put a foot wrong, as Joe said. And was this Verstappen's best performance in Formula 1? I think so. But on the subject of Max Verstappen on boards, let's talk about that little visor tear-off that found its way into Charles Leclerc's front right brake cooling, I believe it was. And I understand that it's probably a very, very rare thing. It doesn't happen very often. The way that they tear off their little visor covers is the way it is for a reason that what they used to do is tear them off and just chuck them over their heads and they would go straight back into the car and it was a bloody nightmare so they now tear them off to the side unfortunately on this occasion Charles was right behind him it went into his brakes not very good there was a little conspiracy going around F1 Twitter of course that this was a load of rubbish made up by Ferrari claiming that it was Max's tear off when in fact it was an issue with their brakes, which I'm sure all of us think is absolutely insane. However, it is floating around because F1 Twitter is F1 Twitter. But I would love to get you guys' thoughts on this because I don't know about you. I've seen the onboards and to me it seems clear as day. Uh, it's floating around, so let's just sink it. It's complete nonsense. Ferrari, for all their errors, are human beings and there is no human justification for why they would bring Charles Leclerc in that early to change tyres unless there was something mechanically wrong with the car. There was. It wasn't deliberate, of course. It's a one in a million thing. It's well, Now you explain it, it's actually surprising that it doesn't happen more often, the amount of tear-offs that get chucked off on first laps, especially around tracks like this. But yeah, there was. it absolutely happened, as did the sandwich bag with Alonso's car. There is There are on boards to prove this, people, for God's sake. There's very little to hide in Formula 1 these days, particularly with the onboard camera. If people believe that it's a conspiracy why Charles came in i think you need to stop watching too many conspiracy theory videos on youtube and you know go outside and breathe some fresh air but you know the outside world isn't as terrible as you may think and you know people believe whatever they wish but it was a simple tear off it went into charles's tires it screwed him up ferrari pitted him in because of the fact that maybe dirt on the tires or damage blah 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 it's not that deep all right next Next, indeed. And let's talk about something a little bit more positive. Esteban Ocon, cracking drive. He's having a cracking season so far. I know that I think all of us have actually thought this in recent weeks. The man is, in my opinion, underrated, doesn't really get the the limelight and the spotlight that I think he deserves. And I think the reason why is he is just consistently and quietly bringing results, doing well. He's a bit like, say, 
the Lando Norrises of the world who aren't really making that many mistakes. They're just quietly putting in good drives and they're consistently not DNFing, not crashing, not hitting people. Esteban Ocon is really proving to me this year that he is up there with the Landos and the Pierre Gasly's of the world, for sure, because he's just putting in blinding performance after blinding performance, this week certainly being no exception at all. Look at the qualifying gap between him and Alonso. He was objectively the faster driver in qualifying. If if Alpine hadn't for some reason decided to keep Alonso ahead of him in the late stages of the race, Ocon would have gotten him. His pace was genuinely so impressive and consistent, good on tyres as well. The thing with Esteban Ocon, Shannon, you're right, he doesn't get the limelight because much like Charles Leclerc in 2020, it's difficult to hype up what he's doing because he's often in isolation, driving very quickly on his own. It's not particularly exciting directing. But we got moments like this this weekend. That double overtake on the Kemmel Strait, turning Sebastian Vettel, four-time world champion, into Ricardo Zonta, that's awesome stuff. Like he, he was one of only two people to get past Alexander Albon in this entire race. The guy's... This weekend, he had it all. If Max Verstappen didn't exist, he's driver of the weekend for me. Not even close. Epic would be the way I'd describe Esteban Ocon's performance. He was quick right from the get-go, put back to 16th, worked his way up. That free-wide move was chef's kiss and would have made Mika Hakkinen, who was in attendance that week, this weekend, very proud. It was a great performance by Esteban, but I think it's, it's what he's been doing ever since he arrived in Formula 1 2016, punching above his weight, being consistent, quietly clogging, plugging away and getting the job done, getting the points you need for the constructors and the drivers' championship. He's, the, he's just that guy. He is very, very impressive, and I have to give his flowers. He has been driving, I would say at times, he has been substantially the best driver of the midfield. That's my hot take. Absolutely silly. Silly. And I think he absolutely has to be on the short list of names that we talk about when we discuss who might take Lewis's seat when he one day retires. Because I know that Gasly is spoken about a lot. Norris is spoken about a lot. Esteban Ocon has to be the third name in that list, without a doubt. Staying on a positive note, Sebastian Vettel still got it. That was an absolutely cracking race from him this week. And it was really nice to see him get some points as well. I'm just, I'm impressed. And I want the end of his season to go well. I want to see him have these good finishes throughout this second half of the season, because obviously at the end of it, he's leaving us, which I don't like to be reminded about because it simply makes me sad. Is this guy really going to retire at the end of the season? He's still driving like he was in his prime at Ferrari. I thought it was an excellent performance. And Sons, the the mugging by Ocon down the Kemmel, did a great job. It's just a shame the qualifying didn't go as well as he had hoped. Otherwise, he may have had a top six and we may be talking about Sebastian Vettel in the same light of Esteban Ocon. Well, Esteban Ocon did. So, yeah, good performance. And it'd be a shame not to see that race craft anymore next year because I thought we are really missing someone next year when he eventually rides off into the sunset. It is indeed going to be very sad to see him go. But, gentlemen, it is time to take a little walk. The only grid walk, as I always say, that we are ever likely to be doing. It's time for Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Mick Schumacher's relationship with Ferrari is to conclude in December, meaning that the German will likely be a free agent as he searches for a 2023 drive in Formula One. Antonio Giovinazzi is currently a favourite to land the seat alongside Kevin Magnussen, although Daniel Ricciardo's name is also in the mix as he searches for a seat for 2023. 
Silly Season is most certainly still alive and kicking. And speaking of Silly Season, Pierre Gasly to Alpine? Despite Alpine still seeing a way back for Oscar Piastri as they await the contract recognition board ruling, rumours are now flying that Pierre Gasly is their preferred driver. Red Bull boss Christian Horner is apparently open to releasing Gasly, while Esteban Ocon apparently wants Mick Schumacher as a teammate next year. Not only is Silly Season still alive and kicking, it would appear that in 2022 the Silly levels are off the charts. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, dear listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. So, Silly Season is silly news to no one. But I feel like this Pierre Gasly news kind of threw me sideways today because in my mind, where did that come from? It feels like only recently he was confirming that he very much still had another year left on his contract with AlphaTauri. Where has this even come from? Simple, really. A domino effect to the silly season from Seb retiring Aston Martin getting Alonso to Piastri saying, "Mm, you're right with Alpine. Now Pierre Gasly has whooshed himself into the Alpine drive. And to be honest with you, I think he would be a very good choice for Alpine. He's a Grand Prix winner. He's experienced. He's had plenty of years under his belt. He's dragged the Alpha Tari to places it should have never gotten to. I, I think he would be a, a good choice if Alpine decides uh, to go with him. And think about the marketing side. A French super team. Zutalar. This will be it'll be as French as Serge Gansberg smoking a gitans in a Parisian cafe. It'll be very interesting to watch those two. All via all via and stone, of course. C'est normal. I do think that if Pierre Gasly were to go to another team, Yuki Sonoda would just be clinging on to his ankle like a little barnacle, refusing to let go because that relationship is pretty cute. You can't lie. But also Mick Schumacher potentially leaving his relationship with Ferrari, presumably either not seeing a future with them or not wanting to wait until either Carlos or Charles moves on. And now potentially, just I, I didn't see that coming. I'll be honest. I did not see this coming either. I thought he was committed to waiting on that Ferrari seat. I don't know about you guys, but another one that just threw me sideways. Am I being silly? Um, No, actually, because... Gunther Steiner has regularly said that he's, you know, questioning Mick's driving talent. Sorry, Mick's talent because of the fact that, you know, up until uh, Canada, he was crashing a lot. And Steiner did openly call him out in public saying, this is not acceptable. You've got to improve. We're running out of money. So it's no wonder that the relationship has kind of broken down. And with the fact that there's going to be no vacancies at Ferrari for till at least 24, 25 you kind of wonder what do you do with him? You can't just keep him in the loop saying, okay, we'll give you another year of house, another year of house, another year, until they realise, ah, what do we do with you now? So it's difficult for him. He's he's definitely come on since that Monaco crash. But as we know, Formula One is a piranha club. One minute you are the hottest shit in town and the next minute you're yesterday's lunch. I mean, what about Mick to AlphaTauri? If Pierre Gasly does go to Alpine, Mick to AlphaTauri? I don't really see anyone in the Red Bull Drivers Academy that could come up and fill that seat. Again, am I being stupid, Joe? 
Red Bull have no one to replace Gasly with. I'm not kidding. None of their F2 drivers, there are five of them, none of them are ready. And they don't like going outside that academy. So if they wanted to poach Schumacher from FDA, bring him over to the Red Bull hierarchy, I've heard of worse ideas, certainly coming out of the mouth of Helmut Marko, but again, who who else are they going to replace Pierre Gasly with? Silly season is confusing me so much now that I almost I, I try and figure out where everyone could possibly be going and where everyone fits in. And then parts of my brain just start exploding and I give up because it's confusing me too much at this point. So before I do lose another part of my brain to spontaneous combustion, let's jump in our little time machine. It's time for Looking Back with Ed Spencer. Now for Zanvor. I had to scale far and wide to find a race that I could talk about in detail, mainly because the old races were in black and white and were pretty much undescribable. But luckily for this one, I could use something. And this was the story of Nicky Lauda's final Grand Prix victory. It's the story of Lauda's last hurrah. It's Holland 85. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Zandvoort saw the Formula 1 paddock grab their bucket and spade for another trip to the seaside, this time for round 11 of the 1985 championship. Going into Zandvoort, Michele Alboreto and Alain Prost were neck and neck on 50 points, with Elio Dianzis 22 points back, but still mathematically in with a chance for the title as rumours continued to swirl as to whether he would leave Lotus at the end of the season. However, none of the trio could snatch pole as Brabham's Nelson Piquet and Williams's Keke Rosberg locked out the front row with Prost best of the title contenders in third ahead of Ayrton and Senna. Theo Fabi and Patrick Tombe, despite a violent shunt in the warm-up, would force him to start from the pits, locked out row three. DeAngelis would start 11th, but for Alboreto he would have a mountain to climb from 16th after the second segment of qualifying was rendered effectively null and void. PK stationary, absolutely stationary on the start, and as the rest surge away, and it looks as though the pole position man is stuck at the start, well there he is, and while the man who worked so hard for pole position is stationary, the leader is sure enough. 
Pinky Rosberg with in second position one of the JPS cars. PK stalled on the line, forcing the cars behind to take avoiding action, with Rosberg now leading Senna and Prost into Tarzanbucht as PK was pushed off the line and back into the fight, albeit a lowdown. Further back, both Alfa Romeos went out with a pair of embarrassing turbo failures while Pierluigi Martini crashed out, reducing the field to 23. Up at the front, Rosberg led comfortably from Senna and Prost, who now had his teammate Nicky Lauda getting ground after an outstanding opening stint, which had seen the three-time world champion move into fourth from tenth on the grid as Johansson retired on lap nine with engine failure. On lap 14, Lauda made his way past Senna and was up to third behind teammate Prost, with the pair now setting off after Rosberg as the retirements continued to rack up. Matteo Fabi, Jonathan Palmer, Jack Lafitte and Piercarlo Gonzani all going out just over quarter distance. And that looks like Kenny Rosberg in trouble. So, Kenny Rosberg has done what we feared he would do on a lap 21 out of 70 after a, a stirring drive. The McLaren pair's prayers were answered on lap 20 when Rosberg's Honda engine gave up the ghost on the run down to Bosholt with Lauda in for tyres as the Finn crawled into retirement. Senna was next in, and he managed to do the overcut on Lauda as Prost continued to stretch, at the lead over, stretch his lead out over Alboreto, who stopped later on in the race. Prost followed the Italian into the pits, but his stop was painfully slow, and he lost the lead to Lauda, with Senna jumping into second as the race settled down. Now Prost was stuck behind the Brazilian and had to wait until the front straight to get back into second, forcing him to become the hunter as Lauder maintained a decent-sized cushion out in the lead as the laps ticked down. And the gap now between Nicky Lauder and the race leader and the new second-place man that you're looking at, appropriately number two, Alain Prost, is 10.7 seconds on lap 48. But the Austrian had his lead slashed when trying to lap back markers, with the gap closed down to just over three seconds, with Prost attacking Lauder into the Hudenwach chicane, but to no avail as Lauda clung on to win the final race of his career. What a day for McLaren and their two drivers. With Prost second, but crucially securing six championship points, as Senna held off Alboreto for the final step on the rostrum. D'Angelo's picked up two points in fifth, with Mansell sixth, bringing home a point for Williams. From Zanvoort onwards, Prost took command in the championship race, as a series of Ferrari technical foibles gave the Frenchman his first title as over Alboreto as Lauda announced his retirement at that year's rescheduled Belgian Grand Prix. Sadly, the Dutch Grand Prix would be Stefan Bellos' final race in Formula 1, as he would be killed in a sports car crash a week later, robbing the world of motorsport of a rising star who was tipped for great things. Formula 1 wouldn't return to Zandvoort for 36 years after the circuit owners declared bankruptcy, causing the track to be disused for two years. However, the arrival of Max Verstappen brought the sport back to Holland, and in 2021, the modernised circuit hosted its first Grand Prix for over three decades, with Verstappen taking victory, much to the euphoria of his Orange Army supporters. Well, I've got to say, Ed, listening to that has made me even more excited for next week's race, and I am optimistic that we could see hopefully a surprising result, maybe, or... Are we just going to see Max up front again, having a comfortable first place? Am I being delusional? Producer Royfield is nodding his head. Shannon, you're delusional, he says. 
Holland coming back on the race calendar was something which I look forward to because I do actually remember Lauda's last victory. I remember that race. And I remember Zandvoort was always interesting for two reasons. Number one, there was sand on the track because it's close to a beach and the corner Tarzan. Murray Walker was saying, and he's coming round Tarzan. However, the race last year was a massive letdown as a spectacle considering it had that banked uh, corner. Nothing, nothing happened. It didn't give drivers an extra opportunity to switch lines in the way that, that, uh, that the race designers thought. So I actually think Zandvoort's a bit of a bust in terms of a decent racing track. But in terms of a spectacle, all those orange fans, amazing. Or as Lando Norris likes to call them, McLaren fans. But it is time, chaps, to do our news of the week. And I'm going to kick off with a particularly spicy little news bite. Mattia Binotto seemingly refused to do a live interview with Sky Sports Italia this weekend after some disagreements he had with the interviewer in the post-race chats at Budapest, where the interviewer expressed criticism of Ferrari's strategy putting Charles on hard tyres. So I guess this week he just said nope and decided he wasn't going to do it. So classy behaviour from Mattia. It says an awful lot that I'm taking the side of Sky Italia in this whole decision. The most, the most famously worrying words, especially in football, are according to reports from our colleagues at Sky in Italy. As soon as that starts, you know it's going to be unreliable. The fact that I am on their side against Mattia Bonotto on this, that tells you all you need to know. The guy just cannot face criticism. Well, I mean, Carlo Vanzanini is a very controversial figure, but come on. The Defosi are annoyed. You finished third and sixth. I think the fans would like to know something. After all, they do contribute to your pay packet. Not to mention, just quickly, the fact that he's scared of one reporter at a venue that isn't in Italy. What's he going to do when he goes to Monza? When there are going to be tens of thousands of actual Italians calling for your head after the season that you have just presided over? It's not going to work, Mattia. You can't dodge the vampires forever. They're going to be there with their pitchforks. It does make me wonder what would have happened in 2020 when Ferrari were going for a real, real slump. I reckon the fans would have been quite hostile. So they would have had to have been all sorts of stuff near the pit wall. While we're with you, Mr. Spencer, what is your news of the week? So, Sergio Perez, he's constantly being told to improve by Helmut Marco. And this weekend, it's no exception. Helmut Marco has called on Perez to improve, and I quote, he has to be fully there from the first practice session. Maybe then he'll help manage a couple of first and seconds. And Christian Albers has added petrol to the fire by saying, it is nonsense that Perez is a tyre whisperer. Max has had that under better control for several seasons. Yikes. I mean, can we cut Perez a break? He literally has Max Verstappen as a teammate. It's almost impossible to match that level of speed and performance. The guy's doing a good job, or at least I would like Helmut Marco to point out someone that he thinks could do a better job than Sergio Perez. Honestly. Asking Christian Albers for his opinion, I mean, all I can hear is Dutch exceptionalism. I hear it too, Joe. I hear it too. It's, it's flying around the room. But what is your news of the week? It is not confirmed, but it is all but confirmed. You know that South African Grand Prix that we were going to get from the beginning of next year? 
nope, we are not going to have Kyle Army or a South African Grand Prix on the 2023 calendar. Although the schedule is not fully announced yet, the list of contracted venues is readily available. South Africa is nowhere to be seen. We're going to have to wait at least another year, which is probably part of the reason why Spa got renewed, albeit only for one more year. The dominoes are taking place. Are you telling me that my Gossip Grid reports throughout this season were wrong? Because I've been talking about this coming back with certainty for months. I I will defer your criticisms, Shannon, to Wikipedia, which disagrees with you. I'm not saying anything. I do not shoot the messenger on this occasion. I mean, I tend to disagree with Wikipedia, so I'm just going to leave it there. Surely, almost by definition, gossip can't be wrong because the gossip was there that Kalami was coming back. He didn't state it as fact or news that it was coming back. Exactly. Yeah, she's reporting upon the gossip. It exists. So and what we're was, saying is, I can never be wrong. Some journalists were literally reporting it as if it was official. Twitter journalists, I may add, not the usual official ones. Well, it's good to know that I'm not wrong and I can never be wrong. That truly has made my day. Thank you, gentlemen. But it is time. Classic teams of F1 lore with Mr. Joe Spagnoli. As producer Royfield is keen to remind the likes of Joe, Formula One's early Italian eminence ended very quickly, with most of the sport's history being dominated by British teams. This week's choice, British Racing Motors, or BRM, were no one-season anomalies. They won an F1 title. Surely there's no way that Joe can undermine a team who rose all the way to the top of Formula One, is there? I actually don't know what Royfield's opinion on BRM is. I just assumed as a Lotus fanboy, you probably don't like it very much. Fresh from the high of the UK winning the Second World War, with no help from other nations, of course, entrepreneurs Raymond Mays and Peter Berthon wanted to further that sense of national pride through the means of an all-British Formula One team backed by the British motoring industry. The originally titled British Racing Motors rose into existence just a little too late for Formula One's official 1950 start, rocking up at Silverstone the following year with two British drivers, two British cars, painted in British racing green, and powered by an insane and unreliable British V16 engine. The BRM cars, which had arrived at the last minute and had not therefore practiced, were in hot pursuit of the leaders, and both Parnell and Walker were driving perfectly. Both cars finished somehow, and Reg Parnell even scored points on their debut, but incoming regulation changes would outlaw Frankenstein's motor, and the BRM team, officially entered as the Owen Racing Organisation, didn't race again until 1954. The British industry financial model had long gone even by then, with Sir Alfred Owen, hence their namesake, taking over the team and bringing in ex-Rolls-Royce engineer Tony Rudd, who'd stay with BRM for almost 20 years. When the team returned at Thram 1954, British Racing Motors weren't even running their own car. Instead, they'd bought an Italian Maserati chassis and Italian Maserati engine. So, truly a team of which Britain could be proud. Almost three years passed before an actual BRM, the Type 25, took the starting grid, and its circumstances, arriving late and requiring a lot of development to be competitive, would come to define almost every car BRM ever designed. By 1959, however, they'd found the sweet spot, and Swede Joe Bonnier would roar home to win at Zandvoort, ahead of the dominant Coopers. 
Typically, the incoming rear-engine revolution caught BRM off guard, and they couldn't even get their own motors working with the concept until 1962. Behind the scenes was very British chaos. Owen kicked out the founders Mays and Burton, replacing them with one Louis Stanley, who just so happened to be Alfred Owen's sister's husband. As for Owen himself, he was threatening to pull the plug altogether if the team didn't start winning soon. That new engine, paired with a lineup of Richie Ginther and the original Mr. Monaco, Graham Hill, would wipe the floor with their competition in 1962. Hill took the team's second win at Zandvoort, and then won at the Nürburgring, Monza... Right from the start, the race resolved itself into a Fulham Anita, with Graham Hill and the BRM setting the pace. America's Richie Ginther in another BRM drove steadily in second position. The BRM is now well in the lead for the Manufacturers' World Championship. And after taking the finale in East London, BRM had won both championships. For the next three years, BRM finished second in the constructors' standings and gave a Grand Prix foothold to the legendary Jackie Stewart. But for 1966, those meddling regulation changes yet again blew BRM away. Aside from a Monaco win for Stewart in 66, they were nowhere near the top, and it took another two years for the team to get a good engine together. The new V12 took a while to come good, but once it did, it just never seemed to stop getting more powerful. Pedro Rodriguez took the team back to the top step at Spa 1970, but 71 would be even better, notching up another second-place constructors' finish and two wins, one for Joe Siffert in Austria, and more famously Peter Gethin at Monza, edging out the closest win in F1 history. The surprise came at the end of this 55-lap race, when a really tight bunch of cars streaked across the line to a photo finish. It turned out that Britain's Peter Gethin in a BRM was fractionally ahead of Swedish driver Ronnie Peterson. That momentum was sadly lost for 72, what with the deaths of Rodriguez and Siffert, and backstage BRM were back on their nonsense, with Louis Stanley planning to run no fewer than six cars per race, until the sponsors encouraged him against colonising half the grid. After 1974, Alfred Owen finally finished his support for the now midfield team, and their following decline was dramatic. From 10 points in 74, BRM scored none in 75, and after taking more or less a whole year out to design a new car, their final F1 challenger was a disaster, nearly always failing to qualify. The team sold up after 1977, and what assets remained weren't even good enough to be bought by another team. Royfield, I would love to get your opinion on this. BRM. Are you a fan of BRM? Not massively. Um, BRM, um, their demise came when I was properly in short trousers. And the one season, which I do remember as a little kid, was 1976 when James Hunt won the championship. So looking for teams at the back of the grid was not something a little six-year-old me was ever going to do. However, then becoming somewhat of a student of the history of the sport, I fully appreciate the role of BRM that literally they are the first British constructor who, ha who has some level of sustained success. And what really nobbles them in the end is the fact that, unlike all the other British teams, they don't go for Cosvus DFV engine. They soldier on with their own engine, this V12, which um, was something which no other Garazista team or British team actually did. So when you look at it, they, they, their period in the sport was so long, they actually had quite a few peaks, but actually did not an awful lot. And uh, the early 1970s is their last kind of peak. So um, 
as a Lotus fan, I'm supposed to despise them because they were the other good British team in, in the 60s, if you look at the history of the sport. But actually, I just think it, it, it's a shame. And, and I fully appreciate, in hindsight, what they did by having their own engine and chassis, which is what no other British team kind of did. And they did it for almost 30 years in the sport, you know, some 26 years. So they deserve their place in uh, Formula 1 history. They do. They do. Am I right in understanding, Joe, you have a personal grievance with Sir Alfred Owen? Well, it's not too personal. It's just me holding grudges that even the man involved does not hold. So um, Sir Alfred Owen was something of an industrialist and he was one of the main people involved with the Rubri Owen machinists and engineering group, especially especially prominent in the West Midlands, which is where my family have been since the Second World War. And it's actually where my father did his apprenticeship. Papa Spagnoli learned all the skills to where he is today. They taught him fantastically. But I'm going to look on the other side of this and also point out that as an apprentice, they paid him really, really badly. So this British, like, nationalistic British pride Formula One project, when it came to foreign workers, they didn't want to pay them well whatsoever. So, no, I'm glad to see BRM folding. I mean, just quickly, I kind of mention the stupidity of those engines that Royfield was talking about. They had that H16 thing and they were surprised that it was really heavy. It's two engines stuck together. Of course it's going to be bloody heavy. They're surprised it's unreliable. There's twice as much stuff that can go wrong. Come on, guys. I think, Mr. Spagnoli, now that you are suitably fired up from your little rant, it's time for everyone's favourite part of the podcast... It's Plonker of the Week, and given that you're already fired up, we're going to start with you, Joe. I am really concerned about how little attention has been given to this guy in recent months because people just expect it of him. I'm not letting him sink below the radar this time. Nicholas Latifi was dog-awful this weekend. That accident at Lacom makes no sense for a Formula 1 quality driver. It's bad enough that he made the mistake in the first place. Even worse that he took out someone who was actually doing pretty well that weekend. Valtteri Bottas. Nicholas Latifi, fairly simple pick. Move on. I'm not going to disagree. Mr. Spencer, who is your plonker of the week? Which catering company is it this time? There's no catering companies this time. It's Ferrari's strategies department. You have fifth place wrapped up. That was the whole plan of the race, to finish fifth. You then pit your driver on the last lap. He speeds in the pit lane. You lose fifth on the way out. He tries to get the car up back up to fifth, which he does. Gets a five-second time penalty at the end of the race. Finishes safe. More points lost. And to put the icing on the on the cannoli, it was six over step. Bit of a waste of time, if I'm being honest with you. I feel like you're finally on the same page as me and Joe. Me and Joe have been here for weeks. And you're finally on the same page. I love that you're here. I love that it wasn't food or traffic or something. Thank you, Ed. You've made my day once again. However, my plonker of the week, I'm going to have to jump on Joe's bandwagon here because I was so angry when Latifi put Bottas out on his birthday. Sorry, I'm not going to let this go. It was the man's birthday. He started his day in a sea of balloons and he ended it in a sea of gravel. It's unacceptable. It was stupid. And the fact that he was able to carry on the race in his mediocre, uneventful, crappy way and finish it while Bottas was probably sat in his little sea of balloons drinking a tiny little bottle of beer going, traditions, 
just made me sad. Latifi out. He needs to go. Strange. Goodbye. He's my bonk Sharon, of the week. Are you telling me that they left um, Bottas's car in the gravel until he went to sleep at midnight? Well, his race ended in oh, a sea of gravel at the very right. least. So not his day then. I mean, if it was me, I probably would have just sat in the car and sulked for the rest of the day. But that's why I'm not a Formula One driver. I can understand what Royfield's, where Royfield's coming from here, but honestly, Royfield, he took him out of the race and then forced him to watch this year's Belgian Grand Prix. That's not fair. No one deserves that. Fair enough. Good point. Good point. Oh, yes. Well, in the absence of our good friend intern, I think we're going to need you to do a plonker of the week. Nicholas Latif. Can I just quickly add something? Since we're talking about what we would do if we were Valtteri Bottas after the race, I probably would have waited to the safety car and gone and flipped through the bird and then walked back off. <laughs> because, yeah. How very NASCAR of you. That's what I'm thinking. Might as well in- embrace my inner, inner hillbilly. Actually, change that. Embrace my inner NASCAR driver. I'm, I'm as big as one, so ain't, who knows? Maybe I act like one, too. Well, I think it would have been well within Bottas's rights to choose violence after that shocking behaviour. And I hope he had a lovely rest of his birthday because I really like Valtteri Bottas and it made me sad. But on the plus side, we have a clear, undoubtable winner for Plonker of the Week. That is Nicholas Latifi. I hope someone at Williams is listening to this. Get rid of the man. For the love of God, make him go. And with that... We have run out of time this week, chaps. That is the end of this week's Race Directors podcast. I would invite you, dear listeners, to please write us a review on Apple iTunes if you feel so inclined, if you've been enjoying the podcast. We do also have a channel on YouTube, so search for and subscribe to the Race Directors podcast to watch some of our content on there. Tell your friends, follow us on Twitter at race underscore directors, or you can like us on Facebook if you are a boomer at the Race Directors podcast. We will be posting on there also. We look forward to seeing you next week. Obviously, we are diving into this triple header. We will be with you every step of the way. It's time to go to Zanvort, chaps. See you later. Bye. I will get my bucket in spade. Rueda, you have escaped my wrath for but an episode. I'm sure we'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.